Please turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In the two verses right before our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul had written these words, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The context here demands that we hear this as addressing not an individual you, but as a collective you, and we do that very well in Texas, we say y'all. This is speaking to the Corinthian church, the body of believers in Corinth. The Corinthian church is, as all of you collectively, is being built as God's holy temple. That's the picture that Paul is drawing. In you, the Corinthian church, the spirit of God dwells. His gathered people, in his gathered people. These two verses that we ended with last week issue a stern warning concerning how much God cares about his temple, the church, his dwelling place, and that he holds those accountable who would destroy his temple, the church. Our passage today continues that thought, expanding it and expounding on it. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 18 and going through verse 23. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Paul is still addressing the divisions and disunity among these people that have been wreaking havoc in this church. And here he goes back to his teaching from chapters 1 and 2 about the important contrast between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. But this time he brings to bear the consequences of their love affair with the thinking of the world. 
Yes, the divisions and disunity are ugly displays of selfishness and lack of love. But he also highlights what will happen to them because of it. And how the Corinthians may actually completely or largely miss out on the tremendous blessings that God has for them as they live in this life. All just because they are willfully and consistently ignoring what he says. In verse 18, Paul begins with, let no one deceive himself. He did not mince any words there, did he? This means that some to whom Paul is writing are in serious danger of self-inflicted blindness to what they're really like and whether they're really thinking correctly and truthfully. Paul's saying something like this. Don't think that you can adopt the world's thinking and values and philosophies of life as if those choices will have no adverse effects upon you and your church. Don't think that you can get away with it. Do not kid yourself that you are some kind of cutting-edge Christian who has a unique ability to apply certain parts of Scripture in ways that allow you to live in ways that you should not, when in fact you're leaving the gospel behind and you are doing great damage to God's church and yourself. God is not going to rewrite the Bible for anyone or any generation. Stop trying to change Scripture when it's written to change you. Stop ignoring the truth I've already taught you. If you don't think it applies to you, then you are already displaying dangerous and destructive spiritual blindness. You need to take a breath after that, don't you? Paul's already emphasized that true wisdom always sides with God and his word, not worldly opinions and preferences. What the world judges to be wise, God dismisses as foolishness. What the world rejects as foolishness, mainly the cross of Christ, is really nothing less than God's wisdom. The world takes stock in power, prestige, and influence. God displays himself most clearly on the cross in a most unexpected weakness. Yet that weakness brings about God's gut-wrenching but thrilling redemptive plan, which proves to be infinitely stronger than any earthly power. The world runs after strong leaders. But leaders in the church must first of all be servants of Christ. The world flaunts its heroes and experts and gurus. Christians remember that God loves to choose the what? The weak and lowly and despised so that no one may boast before him. The world is impressed 
with oratory and sophisticated presentations that look and sound dazzling and attractive. Jesus' apostles depended upon truth above style. They would not consider forms that would take away the centrality of gospel truth and therefore jeopardize it. So what does Paul tell these Christians and us? Verses 18, the middle of 18, through the first part of verse 19. Paul writes, If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Now, this gets very personal, does it not? If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, we can't skip over this. We've got to ask ourselves some questions. Do you think you're wise in this world we live in? Would those that know you best, your family and friends, describe you as someone who seems to always have a need to share your opinion with anyone and everyone about every topic on the face of the earth? Do your interactions with others tend to be all about you? An ancient Roman teacher wrote something that proves that this has been a problem with human beings since day one. He once said this of his students. They would doubtlessly have become excellent scholars if they had not been so fully persuaded of their own scholarship. One of John Calvin's comments about 1 Corinthians is very important here. It seems that the world's wisdom in every age is especially seductive for those people who are fiercely driven to be, quote, independent, govern their own lives, and manage their own affairs rather than submit to the Lordship of Christ. I don't know about you, but it seems like Texans are especially maybe the target of some of that comment. It has proved to be beneficial in so many ways, but it's also seductively powerful in how we approach God and His Word, is it not? One of the biggest and most drastic changes in our culture's collective frame of mind in the last 50 years has been the now nearly across-the-board acceptance of the necessity, the necessity for you to believe with all your heart that self-fulfillment and self-authentication are worthy goals to drive your life every minute of every day. This is the I'll try to be nice, but don't get in my way attitude. Do we realize that as Christians we cannot be and will never be helpful co-builders of God's temple if we are only concerned about our own bricks or building blocks? 
Do we realize our own personal susceptibility to the shameless selfishness and self-promotion that our culture literally now idolizes? Do we recognize how very much each of us is affected and tempted to think like the world that we live in? And what destruction shows up in our lives when we do operate and think like that? So if you do operate with a view of yourself that is way too high, what does Paul say to do? Well, he lays it out here, and it's pretty blunt. There's a lot of times we need blunt. Verse 18, the last part, let him become a fool that he may become wise. What does that mean? Well, first, it means that you must recognize that your own human wisdom tends to be what? Foolishness before God. The older you get, the more you have lots of examples to prove how true that is. Story after story after story. We try to make them funny, but what do they tell us? We find out that our own human wisdom is, tends to be foolishness before God Almighty. Secondly, we've got a decision to make. We've got to decide that we will side with God and what His Word says, even if we're called fools by the world. We used to call that counting the cost. Remember, there's verses like Proverbs 9.10 all over the place, but let's take Proverbs 9.10. We've got to read it and deal with it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And then, in verse 19a of our text, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Knowing this about God and accepting it is a vital part of what it means to be a Christian. Do we? We want to have both because we want to look good to the world and its wisdom. And we want to get what we want by using worldly wisdom. But at the same time, we want to serve God. Is that possible? Jesus happens to say, no, it's not really possible at all. The third thing is to be assured that God knows your heart and is never deceived or outsmarted by human plots and pretensions. In verse 19b of our text, we read, For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. This is a quote of Job chapter 5, verse 13, where the worldly wise are high-minded and crafty, but God overturns their plans in a way that brings them to a place of receiving consequences similar 
to what they'd been devising for other people. Are there any examples of this in the Bible? Oh, there's many. But you know what the best one is? It's in a little book in the Old Testament called Esther. The weird, strange story of how a Jewish girl became queen. There's another Jewish character in this book, very important, Mordecai. And then there's a government official that became the number two person in the whole kingdom under King Ahasuerus. And his name was Haman. And Haman was so full of himself, he could not wait to put Mordecai in a trap, catch him, not obeying a law about who you bowed down to. He caught him. He built gallows to hang him. And then God did some strange, creative, powerful things and turned the whole situation around. And you know who ended up being hung on those gallows? Haman. It's a great story, and it's a perfect illustration of how God works many times. And in verse 20, we read, and again in our text, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And this is a quote of Psalm 94, verse 11, where we see that the worldly wise are arrogant, but God will bring their thoughts to nothing. So the worldly wise, just in these two quotes, are depicted as high-minded and crafty and arrogant. And after making these points, Paul then very strongly prohibits something. What is it? Verse 21, first part. So let no one boast in men. I think that's including ourselves. So why is boasting in some human leader wrong? Remember, he's still dealing with the factionalism in this church. Where groups of people had identified with one of their, actually the ones he mentions are great teachers, himself included. But they wanted to kind of ride on this person's coattails and get the glory themselves arguing with the other groups and about who was the better group because we follow this guy more than this guy, and it tore the church to shreds. Well, there's really two reasons why boasting in some human leader is wrong that Paul covers here. First is because the focus is wrong. We've seen this already. It's on some human being instead of the Lord. And in the earlier examples that Paul gave, he gave an agricultural example. The point was that God alone assigns the task of his servants, the ones who sow and reap, and God gives life. In the architectural example, God is the judge, and he deeply cares what is being built, holding the builders accountable for their work. So the question is, why should we boast about some attachment to one of the builders of God's temple? The focus is completely in the wrong place. 
There's a second reason that he brings in today that should just rock your boat. And it's this. The second reason we should not boast in anyone but God is that it cuts you off so much from what would be and should be being received by you as blessings from all the other believers in the church. This is a self-inflicted wound, and it's serious. Now, in the building example, it would be kind of like being confined, you, because you're factional, you have divided, you're boasting in whoever, trying to get some of the glory for yourself. It's kind of like being confined to one room in that building. And since your group thinks it's higher and mightier than all the rest, it might be like confining yourself to the attic. To focus on one part of the building project as if that project or that part, that part was the most important part about the building is cutting yourself off from the project as a whole. And some of us were going, well, that's the whole point. I don't want to fellowship with those people. I don't want to have anything to do with that part of the church. Those people are just weird. Now, remember, this church in Corinth was highly diversified. So you can see how easily this could be done. So what are you doing? You're actually robbing yourself. Robbing yourself. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And that helps us then go to verse 21, the second half, and understand what he's saying here. What does he say? For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. In other words, all who contribute to the church belong to and serve all the rest. You're blessed by the gifts that God gives to his church and calling people, different people, to minister, to teach, to serve, to encourage, whatever it is. That is the best thing about being in the body of Christ, is seeing how he coordinates his people and the leaders, especially in this, that should model this. Instead of saying, I belong to Paul or whoever, they ought to be saying, Paul and Apollos and Cephas and our other leaders all belong to us. How blessed we are. So if you're consumed with undue loyalty and affection for only one leader, you, in effect, depreciate how much there is to receive from all the others. This is not rocket science. But look what else Paul adds here. The last part of verse 22. The world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. 
And we're all asking, what in the world does that mean? Because there's obviously people who have taken this verse so out of context. Name it and claim it. You know, here it is. It proves it. You can just ask anything you want, get anything you want. All you got to do is have enough faith. God will give it all. That's ridiculous. That's not what he's saying. So Paul adds these five non-human things and declares that these two are yours. But if you cut yourself off from the project as a whole, in factionalism, you'll not receive all the support and the teaching and encouragement and accountability supplied by the whole church that you need to face these five common worldly concerns and to walk faithfully in them and through them. That's his point. This is really, really good stuff. One of the key words of that last phrase that I use is supplied by the whole church that you need. See, part of our problem is we don't think we need it. We think we can be the Lone Ranger Christian. That we don't have to let people know what we're really like too much. That we can do it ourselves. We even have sayings in this part of the country that are partly true in some way, and you know what it is. You pull up your boots, your own bootstraps. So what does this mean? Well, all five things here in this list are things, just think about this now as we go through them, that you can get so consumed with that you lose your focus on Christ. This covers a lot of ground. This covers everything in life. This is what this list is. The world pressures us from every and all directions. And we struggle mightily with how do we live in the world but not become of it? Do we look at being in this world as the preparation for the next world? Ask yourself that right now. How much of your goals, life goals, include, oh, and not just what it's going to be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, and how much I want to have, and where I want to live, and what I want to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. But how am I preparing now? And how is God preparing me now for life eternal with the Lord Jesus Christ? Some people go through all of life and never ask this question until their last breath. And many not even then. And this is in the sense of recognizing that allegiance to Christ means something. It means that we can no longer belong to this world. Even though, as Paul says here, the world belongs to us. Okay, how does that work? We belong to the owner the one who will one day create a new heaven and new earth and will enable us as co-heirs with Christ to delight in it. In other words, how we belong to the owner. The world now does not belong to us in a ruthless, exploitive way. 
which has been true of certain Christians down through history, but rather through our relationship with the owner. Do you ever think about this? Who has plans for it? This world. There's a plan. And it doesn't involve aliens and all the other sci-fi scenarios that you can dream up. That's how the world tries to deal with what they see on the horizon. Seeing God's sovereign rule and providence in the good gifts he gives us here is another way that we need to think and deal with. It informs our perspective now as he prepares us for the everlasting future with him. Do we see a sovereign God and his gifts now? Or are we griping about everything that's ever happened to us since day one? And we can't see any of God's gift and what he's trying to do because we are so focused on our own navel, we can't see anybody else or him or his purposes. And we all have trouble with this. And last but certainly not least, A lot of you know what's next. And suffering in this world is not a defeating surprise. It shouldn't be. Jesus actually tells us, don't be surprised when this stuff happens. Why? Because he knows we are. And that's a word of grace from his lips. It should not surprise us because we follow a Savior who was suffered. So what do you want to do? You want to follow the Savior that we know will be totally victorious when he receives, but we don't want to follow him at all in his suffering because we just don't like it. Well, who does like it? We're not going to vote for it. We have to see beyond it to the purpose of it, to what God is doing in your heart, in your character, in your soul because of it. That's why when we meet Ancient people, that's anybody older than me. The categories have gotten pretty small then. They're either full of grace and love in the greatest stories on the face of the earth, or they're the most bitter, withered people on the face of the earth. Why? It's a reflection of the life that they've lived and what they've focused on. We need to see the bigger picture and we need to literally have a future hope beyond this world. And that means discipline to think that way. There's a lot of young people in here. You are at a stage where you can begin this early instead of having to try to get this discipline later when you almost don't even have a choice. You can get it. It's in God's word. It's part of his redemptive plan. The next phrase Paul says here is life. This is talking about our present life. 
And it's so easy to cling to this present life in ways that push from our minds the truth that our lives are but vapor and they so quickly vanish. I used to laugh at that. And then all of a sudden, three decades went by with one close call that I know about. God saves us a lot of times we don't know it, but you guys understand this. The smartest thing some of you younger adults can do in here is to talk to people that are older and and make them tell you some stories. Because, see, they know something about you that you don't know. And that is that you don't really listen that well, so they don't want to bother. (laughs) And when you get my age, you're going, I really regret not talking to and making them tell the stories. So do it. And you know what? If you don't do this, if you don't deal with the fact that your life is described in Scripture as a vapor and it quickly vanishes, then you will be gripped by a fear. Fear of what? That this life will be taken from you. And it'll rule your life. You'll live in fear of anything and everything. All the time. Because, you know, it just might. There's healthy fear that way, but this is not the healthiest kind. And you know what Jesus says about this? He says... Not to fear and live in light of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Remember that? I left out the really blunt part. Don't fear those who can kill your body. Fear the one who can take it all. And that means accounting before him. And then we read... I know this looks like a downward spiral, but it's not. Death. No one escapes death. And most of us attempt to live our lives now by what? Suppressing any and every thought of it. But maybe we should seriously consider how Paul approached death when he called it our last enemy. He taught that to be away from the body is to be home with the Lord. And that's in his second letter to Corinthians. And in Philippians, he writes, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he's not voting for going out and taking it early. That's obviously not the point. You know, in earlier days when we were fearful, you know, evangelism was really hard. You actually had to talk to somebody and talk about God, and you knew they were going to think you were nuts. Then you learn to take account of that and not worry about it. You know how Paul approached all this? When he was in prison, you know, he, he said, you know what, you can take my life. I know where I'm going. Well, we'll just keep you here in prison. Well, that's great. I've got some more letters to write. He said he knew what to do being rich, having what he needed, and not having anything. Why? Because he depended upon God. 
Wouldn't it be nice to be consistently having that attitude? Whatever you're holding on to now, it's first and foremost the Lord's. And he knows how best to rule the world he created. And if you belong to him, I hope you've gotten the point. You are especially dear to him. And there are plenty of examples that he gives us from believers in him who have suffered so much that we our little troubles look like nothing. And those are the people who are saying things like, I would never ask God now not to have taken me through that because he made me this way. He showed me his power. He showed me his grace. This is how I really got to know him. I've heard that so many times. And when you hear that from some saints, you just want to shrink and shrivel up thinking, oh God, please forgive me. I am the biggest whiner in the whole state of Texas. And he's still so patient. You can almost hear him say, I know. But I still love you. I sent Christ to die for you. And you have no idea how much you have to learn about me yet. And that is almost too much to take. But it gets you off your rear end. And it helps you stand up and walk. Okay, so we get to the present. Looks like we already talked about this life, but all these things interrelate, of course. But the present is where you are right now. It's where you live and serve God. And he's saying basically it can't devour you no matter how overwhelming, how incredibly painful, how discouraging or tiring or complicated or fearful. What do we do? Have you ever noticed that wherever you are in the present, you always want to get to the next after it, no matter what it is? I mean, one day it may really be the most serious thing on the face of the earth. God, the next day it's something little. I left my phone at the office and it ruins my whole day. You guys all understand, we're all in the same boat here. We know how we just drift all over the place with these things. The present is where you live and serve. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. It shouldn't be. If it's painful or discouraging or tiring or complicated, you know what? In each of those situations, we need to learn to preach to ourselves that we know It is. This is what I'm feeling. Be honest with your God. But because we know this, that God is no less sovereign than he was two minutes before or yesterday, and he will be. He's no less sovereign during those times than any other time in your life. And then what about the future? We've already mentioned it, but this is Paul, what he puts last. You can embrace the future. And this does not mean that you know all the details of your future. It means you can embrace whatever he has for you in the future. 
for the simple reason that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ belongs to God. And God controls the future. He says it this way, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. A lot of us need to replace our little verses on our refrigerators and in our cars. It's not getting a promise if you pray a certain way. We need this kind of stuff to remind us who he is. So we'll think this way. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, do any of these things, these five common worldly concerns, control the believer in Christ anymore? What's the answer? No, they do not. So if you are being controlled by any or all of those or parts of those, you're not trusting God with it. And instead of falling apart at that realization, you bow before him and say, God, you know exactly where I am here. And then you know what happens? Instead of wanting to know the future and being upset if he doesn't show you what's way ahead, you know what he does? He gives you light for the next step. You've got to take the step. He knows where it's going to fall. Sometimes you can't even see where it's going to be, but that light is upon the path that's right down in front of you. And you take it and you go on. You go, wow, there was a step there. He's faithful. And the first time you laugh in the midst of one of those situations, that's a big step. Because you know that in your heart, you just trusted him in a way that you found very difficult before. And he knows exactly how to do this with each and every one of us. These things, these five common worldly concerns, life, they've been decisively beaten and they're under the rule of the sovereign redeemer. And since we are in the company of the redeemed, they are ours. If you can't even fathom thinking like this, if you didn't think thinking like this was even possible, it seems foreign. Is it possible that what you really think about Christianity is that it's nothing more than finding fulfillment or seeking personal peace or identifying with the right leader or Christian celebrity? See what Paul's doing here? He's bringing them home. Remember, he knows most of these people are believers. God used him to bring them to Christ. He's trying to bring them home. I hope this passage thrills your soul and encourages your heart. But if you are answering that question with, it is impossible, then maybe you need to say, do I really know him? I mean, I say I believe in, do I, do I know the God of the Bible or have I believed in something that, of my own imagination that I'd rather him be. Well, what's the answer to that? 
cry out for God's mercy. Confess that you've never really trusted him, trusted him like this. I mean, you, you say you believe in him, but remember, the devil believes in Jesus. He knows who he is. It's not just knowing who he is. It's giving your life to him. And that means everything. And you're going, I can't, I can't. I'm still worrying about this. I'm still worrying about this. Yes, you can. Because in doing that, you're trusting him to work out all the fears and anxieties and false idols that we all have. He can lay those down and say, I'm looking forward to the trip with the life that you've given me and what's still ahead. I believe in you. I trust that Christ paid for my sin. I'm clean. I don't feel like it, but I know that he has blood covered it. All of my sin for, for, for me. And that you accepted that sacrifice and now you're making me part of your family. Yeah, I believe that. So what are you really, you're really asking for his mercy and his son and his work. That's recognizing your need. I hope belonging to Christ and his church becomes more and more treasured and appreciated for all of you who know him. It should be. I think that's a big part of the tremendous blessings that we're experiencing as a body and have for quite a while now. And I hope that we can continue to work and grow together in our commitment to enjoy God and glorify him in all things. that sound familiar? Do we know God in this way? To reverence him and fear him and, and enjoy him? Because we know that he's committed to us. Do you feel safe around people that you know really love you? Yeah. By his grace, we're gathered here this morning. Praise his holy name. We could be doing something ridiculous and foolish with our eyes on anything but the one true God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so humbled again by your word in this passage. We thank you the way that you use your word to get our attention and we certainly need you to work with us that way because we are just darting all over the place in our minds and hearts. We confess our need for you in Christ Jesus, your son. We thank you for the work you have done. We thank you for the work that you are doing. And we thank you that we are in your hands and you will continue to be faithful to us to accomplish what you know will bring glory to yourself and good to us so that your name may be lifted up and the world around us may see who you truly are. And we hope they can get a peek through the way our lives are lived. Oh God, thank you for your faithfulness to us, your mercy that you've given us direction that we can take a deep breath and exhale knowing that as hard and as as many struggles as there are and things we don't understand being in this world now, 
that you use even those hardest things to accomplish your purposes in us. We don't recognize it so many times when it's going on. But Lord, we know that that's why you work and your word explains this and gives us examples of people and how you do it. And we pray that you would make us hungry for your word to learn more about who you are, which will also help us see how great our need is for you. Thank you that belonging to you and being in your family is a sure hope that nothing can take us from your hand. We trust you with what you are doing in us as individuals and as a gathered body of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Now may the Lord, our our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and work. Amen. You're dismissed.